in our efforts this morning to be all things to all people, we made sure that it was warm enough for some of you <laughs> who actually like it that way, I discovered. I walked into the room and it hit me just like a furnace and I said, man, it's hot in here. And somebody said, no, it feels great. <laughs> and then for the 80% of you that are fanning those large bulletins right now, just know that the cool is coming. This actually reminds me a little bit of taking a road trip in my car. It's my side of the car is about cool and comfortable, normal, 68, 70 degrees. Cecilia's is about 84 <laughs> with the seat heater on. And so one way or another, just stay with us long enough and it'll get where you want it to be. It, it may pass that. But my motivation for this when I came in, I said, man, we got to get this AC going. is really a little bit selfish. One, I sweat a lot. And I want to wear this suit more than once between cleanings. But two, and this is where it applies to you, you think I can't see you sleeping, but I can. <laughs> and when the room temperature goes up, I know my odds go down. And the last thing I want to see in about 10 minutes is about a third of you doing this with your mouths wide open. <laughs> so stick with me this morning, because this message is about, it's about sermons. It's a sermon about sermons. And it's a message not only on preaching sermons, but on hearing sermons. So there are a lot of different applications and even audiences to what I'm going to say today. One is an audience of people who in this room might at some point, Lord willing, be delivering sermons to some people, some place, some context, maybe in a church plant, maybe here at Calvary, maybe on the mission field. It's also a message that sort of challenges me and puts it out there publicly for you to hold me accountable to preach this way, what the Bible says. It's sort of like someone who goes on social media and announces that they're going to go on a, on a diet for the next six months with the hopes that someone, which I guess they probably don't typically, ask them how they're doing or why are you eating that donut. But so I do give you permission to, to reference back to this message and say, you know, remember when you preached from 2 Timothy chapter 4 and you said a biblical sermon looked like this? So why are you serving us biblical or why are you serving us non-biblical donuts, as it were, a sermon instead of meat? So... That's for you. But also, there's a real challenge in this text about what you do with what you hear. Because though this is a monologue, the responsibility is on each of us to take what God's Word says to us and do something with it. To be hearers, of course. To be understanders, yes. Comprehenders, for sure. But ultimately, to be doers of the Word is, is our challenge. And so with that in mind, I want to pray and pray that God's will would be accomplished in what I say and what you do with what you hear today. Father, if you do not meet with us today, if you do not speak to us through your word, if your Holy Spirit does not make it plain and clear, if you do not bring it to bear with conviction, with illumination, with the ability to do what you've caused us to desire to do, then Father, none of the good things that we hope to happen will. We'll leave here unchanged. In fact, maybe, Father, even leave here worse than we came in for hearing and not doing. Father, I pray that your word would speak to us today, and in this small sample size, we would see the very promise of your word that it is all profitable. It is all useful. It has different applications, different profits for us, different areas of usefulness for sure, Father, but your word is to us. And Father, I pray that you'll speak to us through it today and your Holy Spirit will make it clear. Father, that we'll do it 
So, Father, change something in what we think. Stir our emotions as well. Empower us by your presence in us to be faithful, to be obedient. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first five verses this morning. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I'm not sure if the words would change very much if the setting were a bit different or the timing were to be a bit different in Paul's ministry life. But I think it's interesting for us to know, and maybe it does add to a sense of weightiness in what Paul is saying, to recognize that these are some of the last words he'll ever write. It's highly possible that within weeks or even a week of penning this letter, um, the Lord would take Paul home, that his journey would be complete, his race would be finished, the course would be run, and he would receive, begin to receive the reward of God's, of God's presence. In his final words, he tells Timothy this, fulfill your ministry, fulfill it. Run it all the way to the end. You're at the beginning stages now, and it's critical that you begin well. And it's great that you've started. But what's ultimate for you, as well as for any other believer, is that you finish, not just that you begin. And the Bible holds out ultimate hope for those who finish, for those who persevere to the end, for those who run the course and go all the way to its final conclusion. So run and finish, fulfill your ministry. And then he goes on to explain, and I'll cover this passage more in depth next week. He says to Timothy, you fulfill your ministry just as I fulfilled mine. The pattern that I've set, this is what I'm challenging you to do too. I'm not saying be me, go to the places I've gone or give the sermons I've given, do all the things that I've done. But there's a biblical pattern here. And look what he writes starting in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. My whole life has been a gift back to God, an offering to God. God who purchased me, who redeemed me, to whom I fully belong. I poured my life out in his service. The time of my departure has come. He was right. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Hence, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I'm confident of this, Timothy, that God will reward the faithfulness that he's called me to. He will reward the, the life well lived, the fight, because sometimes it has been a fight for sure. Fight with, within. Do I keep going? Do I keep pushing in spite of the pain and the difficulty? Fight without so many enemies of the gospel? The fight in the sort of in-between, so many believers that turned out to not be faithful that turned against me, the finish, running all the way to the end, and the faith, remaining steadfast. All of these things are worth it, Timothy. And you'll see. You'll see. One day you're going to see. He will reward us. I mean, Paul says that so clearly without any, without any hint of doubt. 
This is what's going to happen. He's modeling for Timothy this picture of endurance. Timothy, if you'll endure, if you'll fulfill the assignment that God has given you, if you'll do it faithfully to the end, and if you'll disregard the cost, if you'll count Christ as worth it, this endurance is a pathway to reward. I'm sure of it. And he says, so fulfill your ministry. And what's the essence of Timothy's ministry? It's the same essence. They will have lots of other responsibilities. And certainly lots of other challenges will come his way and tasks he's going to have to take up. But there's one irreducible minimum of the calling God put on Timothy's life, and it's the same as the calling he put on Paul's life. And it's this, preach the word. Preach the word. Timothy, your life, your faithfulness, your witness, your character, all those things are going to matter greatly. And your ability to organize and structure and build a church according to the plan that I've given you, all those things are going to be critical. And how you handle yourself and how you deal with others and how you relate to people and the people you surround yourself, you surround yourself with who will mentor you and the people you're going to pour yourself into, all those things are going to matter as we've seen in these two letters. But the fundamental tool of life change that God employs for all people in all places, every culture, Every season of life is His Word. So Timothy, if you want to be an instrument in my hand that will accomplish the purposes for which I'm sending you, use the primary tool that I'm giving you. And that's the Word. Preach the Word. And this is a solemn responsibility. I mean, I can't imagine a more solemn statement being given than what he challenged Timothy with. In his book called Preaching and Preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He said, The most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it's obviously the greatest need of the world also. The greatest need in the church is to preach the word. The greatest need in the world is for people to hear the word, to understand it, to respond to it. And listen to the weightiness of this. This is not a TED Talk. This is not an essay that's been written out that you'll just share publicly by reading your work and your research. Listen to what he says about it. He says, I charge you, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Could it be any weightier than that? I mean, I, I would challenge you to read anything that Paul writes in all of his letters, all of his epistles, to find something more daunting than that challenge. Timothy, I want you to understand the weightiness of what I'm challenging you to do, what God has called you to do. This preaching that you're going to do, to study the Word, to rightly handle it so you can share it correctly with people. This is God's good design for life change. This is all by God's design, and God commands you to do it faithfully. Paul wrote about his own preaching ministry in a bit more detail in his first letter to the Corinthians. I'll read this for you. If you want to flip there quickly, you can. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 Here's what Paul said about the preaching of the word. Now listen to the weightiness of this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. This is foolishness to them. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Think about that statement for a moment. And maybe in your life you can remember a time where preaching of the word, claims of Christ, the gospel message itself just didn't make sense to you. It didn't connect. It didn't take root. It didn't grab your heart didn't motivate you to any change. You heard it, and it went in one ear and out the other, or you just simply dismiss with it altogether. But when God's Spirit affects the change in your heart, 
all of a sudden, that which is so easily disposed of by other people becomes absolutely indispensable to you, and it's life-changing. For us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For all of us in this room who are Christians, we know how God at some time, through his word, has captured us, challenged us, convicted us, and established a starting point, a catalyst for us of real life change. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Do you catch what he's saying? It is by God's design that the natural, rational man, though he may perceive something of God, and he may recognize something of his power or his artistic creativity or his infinitude in the world, he will never come to a relationship with him simply by reason and rational thought. He is unable to. So how will he? How will this God who makes himself known to all of creation so that he's undeniable, how will we ever bridge that infinite gap between unholy us and absolute holy, completely other him? How will that happen? Listen to what he says. God was pleased that through the apparent folly, foolishness of preaching, he will save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Isn't that what we see in Scripture? The Jews always ask Jesus, do something, show us something, prove to us who you are. Even though, by the way, and you know this already, we'll see this when we go through the Gospel of Matthew so clearly, Jesus did that over and over again, but his miracles did not create saving faith in anyone. They were amazed sometimes, dismayed at other times, not converted by and the, the Greeks, we know what he's talking about here. Paul was very skilled at debate. He was very skilled at debating the sophists and the philosophers, the wisdom of the age. But this is not the means of salvation. He says the Jews demand signs. Greeks want to debate philosophy, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. This is not how they envisioned their king to be. This is not how they conceived of the Old Testament promises of a coming Messiah through the line of David, sitting on his throne to look like it's stumbling block to them and it's foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So he's reminding Timothy of this foundation. It may not be apparent here in Ephesus that this is the most effective tool. And, and you might go to some church growth seminar here in Ephesus held by some trendy church, and they'll tell you, no, if you want to engage the people in this city, you've got to do it this way because this is what Greeks respond to. This is what they like to do. You're going to have to learn how to debate. You're, you're going to have to learn philosophy. You're, you're going to have to steep yourself in all the wisdom of this age. You're never going to get them because they're going to think you're an idiot. And if you're going to try to reach Jews, then you're going to have to have something bigger than what you're doing. You can't just get up there and preach a sermon. You've got to show them something, give them something. There's got to be signs and wonders or they're not going to follow. But God's word was that his promise through what man perceives as foolish has infinite power in my hands, my word. And so he tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge, who will appear, who will establish his kingdom in his appearance. Remember, Timothy, when you're preaching, the author of this text, these are his words, this is not just the words of many men assembled into some sort of difficult, 
challenging, sort of confusing collection of stories and tales and events. God, who has every word given to its human authors, God, who inspires them all, is its author. Jesus, who is its subject, are personally attending every sermon that you give, Timothy. He's there in the presence of God. You preach these sermons before the face of God. Jesus, who is not merely crucified, but is raised and is ascended, is present. There's no bigger challenge than that. There's a weightiness to this. Beyond the weightiness, let's look at the why of the sermon. What's the ultimate? I mean, there are many things that Timothy will preach about. Scripture itself is so vast that if I had the opportunity to preach for a thousand years, I'd never plumb all of its depths. If I had an opportunity to, to preach a sermon every day for the rest of my life, I would never begin to cover everything that Scripture covers. That's why, by the way, for me, it's, it's a painful personal conviction that I don't have time to take on frivolities. I just don't. I, I don't have time personally to take a, a season off in the summer and address the movies. I, I don't have time to do that because there's so much Scripture to be preached so little time to do it before my time is over or before your time is over. And there's something at the end of this that is at stake. And it is ultimate. And this is what he's telling him is the ultimate statement. He says Jesus is to judge the living and the dead. Jesus who will appear. Jesus who will establish his kingdom. Jesus appears. Jesus will judge. Jesus will establish his kingdom. And he's telling Timothy that in that statement, this is what's primary about biblical preaching. The king is coming to judge the world. And when he does, his kingdom will be established. This is ultimate. Timothy, in all of your preaching, remember the imminent return of the king. He's coming back. He will not be coming back enshrouded in mystery like an infant in a cave where animals are kept in Bethlehem, he will not be slowly revealing himself over time with actions and deeds. He will come in power and might and glory and all the world will see him. When he does, the Bible says very clearly, all will be raised to judgment, some to the judgment of everlasting life, some of them to the judgment of condemnation, and he will establish a kingdom. This is ultimate. This is the future. This is not fanciful thinking. This is not psychology. This is not some motivational ploy. This is the reality of what's coming. So Timothy preached in accordance with that which is ultimate. What then is the primary? And that's the critical word here, so circle this. Because when I say primary, I'm also saying it's not the only. And there aren't other times and places where secondary or tertiary subjects or issues have to be addressed. But what's primary about preaching, the God-given purpose of it is this. I want you to write this down because this is the heaviest stuff. To prepare all people to meet God and to face his judgment. That's ultimate. That's ultimate. If in my preaching I'm able to pre prepare the majority of you to stand face to face with the Almighty in judgment, with confidence, with certainty, with hope, with joy, to anticipate his coming, not with fearful trepidation, not with anxiety or stress, not wondering what might I say that day when I stand before the one who knows all and sees all, but to stand before him with confidence because you stand in the grace of Christ. As we sang today in that song, you know, what a beautiful old hymn that is. 
What does he require of you? The only thing that is fittingly necessary for you is for you to know your need of him. But if I am covered by his grace, I can stand before him with confidence. I'm prepared to meet him and enjoy him for eternity. That's primary. Now, other things might be important. They might be necessary. He says the primary purpose, since this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus is going to do, is to meet him, to face this judgment, and do all of this with urgency and consistency. Urgency. And again, it's not a manipulative ploy. I, you know, I'm not a revivalist by nature. I don't score my success or the success of our ministry or the church by how many people I can evoke a response from, what sort of emotions I can stir up, what's visible and countable and, and obvious. But it doesn't mean that the message is not urgent. So I would say to any one of you sitting in this room today, whether this is your first time with us or your thousandth time with us, when you walk out these doors today, be prepared to meet God. Be prepared to meet God in, in whatever form that might mean for us. None of us are promised any days. God alone numbers our days. He knows them from beginning to end. And it's not just the thought that death is imminent for all of us, which is obvious, though not palatable, I guess. It's the reality that he could come back at any time, so we're always being prepared and to do this consistently. Therefore, biblical preaching cannot then be primarily about me and my immediate needs, me and my current circumstances, me and the situations that are right in front of me. It doesn't mean those things are not important. In fact, the verse that's just been weighing heavily on me this week personally is the statement of Jesus to us, not just to his disciples, but to us, to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. And I was having one of those moments just kind of stressed out and, and discouraged about something and really with the idea in my mind, a, a wrong idea, was that this is not the sort of thing you pray about. This is just the sort of thing you deal with. You just weather it. You just handle it. You know, this is just life stuff. So you just, you just take it and wait it out till you get through it. And then it's like I hear this, this small voice in my mind, this reminder of the scripture in my mind, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Those things that you care about that are weighty to you, that are painful to you, that are difficult to you, that are discouraging to you, that create doubt in you. Does he care about those things? Absolutely. What cares does he care about? All of our cares. Cast them all on him. In fact, we're commanded not to worry, but to pray. So in those situations, I decided I'll let God be the arbiter of what he wants to do with those things which may seem smallish to other people. But I can cast my cares on him. But what's primary in preaching is God, not my immediate needs, my immediate circumstances, my immediate situations. I did this sort of semi-painful, discouraging bit of research, if you can call it that, and I, I just simply did this. I, I googled the largest churches in America, and you can pull this up on several different sites, but I pulled mine from outreach.com, and then I went down through those largest churches, and I thought, just out of curiosity, I want to see what they're preaching on. And so this is not stuff, I didn't call this from like three or four years ago looking for the most egregious examples. I just pulled these out this week, so these are fairly fresh. The lost art of friendship, building relationships when friends are hard to find. I mean, that's important. It is important that we have friends. It's not of ultimate importance. In fact, you could find out how to have friends probably from better sources than, than me. You could probably read a book, good book about that. You could probably Google some good talks. Unlocking your life-changing potential. I mean, cool. 
Unlock yours. Have at it. And this is one, breaking control. Now, it's, the sermon Breaking Control didn't have a subtitle, so I had to look at the descriptive. You're not supposed to be a doormat for people to walk over, control you, demean you, belittle you, make you feel not good enough. You need people around you that inspire you, people who cause you to dream bigger. What if for the next six months I could help you break control and dream bigger, but you're not ready to meet God? Or you're not living a life that pleases God? If you're not growing in godliness or maturity... The blessed life, how being generous changes everything. This one I didn't understand, so I'll just read it to you. You can listen to the messages if you want to, but I don't know what it means. Fatal distractions. In this series, we'll explore both the implications and antidotes of three major types of distractions. Fog, fires, and fear. Okay. And then I found this one. I was hopeful on this one. I thought, okay, this is one with a an attractive title, but it's got, this is biblical. I know where this one's going. Unlocked, finding freedom with a key in your hand. I thought, that's on Galatians, I'll bet anything. No, it wasn't. Today, we'll discover how to break free from what holds us back, paving the way for hopeful and purpose-driven future. No, you missed the mark. This quote in Christless Christianity, I think, is helpful for us. It was helpful in my thinking. Michael Horton said this. He said, The church in America today is so obsessed with being practical, relevant, helpful, successful, and even well-liked, and it mirrors the world itself. Aside from the packaging, there's nothing that cannot be found in most churches today that could not be satisfied by any number of secular groups and self-help groups. And I thought Michael Horton must have read the sermons in the biggest churches in America this week because that's what he's describing. So the why biblical preaching, the ultimate to prepare you to meet God, to prepare you to face him, to prepare you for life in his kingdom. So what is the what of biblical preaching? We remember we, we saw this in verse 16 of chapter 3. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. He told Timothy, when you preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all teaching. So when we talk about the what of biblical preaching, well, I kind of give the answer away in the title. The what of biblical preaching is the Bible. It, it's not my wisdom. It's not my collective experience. It's not my years of learning. It's not the anecdotal information I picked up from thousands of conversations with people over 27 years in ministry. It's the scriptures. It's, it's the word. It's the word of God, and sometimes that word corrects people. Sometimes it will correct you. If you're hearing biblical preaching, you're going to hear sometimes what you're doing or thinking or, or desiring that's just wrong. And that's necessary for us. That's biblical preaching. The corrective work of God to say, we might lean this way. We might start turning this way, but God's word says this. Are you willing, are you willing to receive correction? Because for a lot of us, that's just hard. And that's... That's offensive or irritating, or at the very least, it's not, it's not palatable. We'd rather hear something else. Sometimes the word corrects. Sometimes the word rebukes. It's not just telling you, hey, you're, you're thinking on this, your belief system is wrong, or your attitude's wrong. Sometimes rebuke is a little bit blunter. It tells you stop. Stop doing that. You don't need counseling. You don't need a Bible study. You need to stop. 
You, you need to confess that as sin and repent of it. You need to turn from it and stop doing that. That's biblical preaching. But that's not all that the Bible does. If all I ever do is correct you and rebuke you, then one, I don't think you would be well established in the faith or have a very good understanding of God's grace. Nor would I be very good at feeding you well because sometimes the word of God is for encouragement. Sometimes what you're going to hear in a message or a text or a sermon is keep it up. You're doing the right thing. You're on the right path. You're seeing this correctly. You're wanting it rightly. It doesn't mean you can't grow in what you're doing or grow in your understanding or advance in your, you know, in your practice of this. But, man, do it. Stay the course. Be faithful. Keep doing what you're doing. I hope that often when you'll leave here, you'll get a sense of an affirmation, not from me, not, you don't need my pat on the back, but, but God's. The Holy Spirit telling you, keep it up. Be faithful. Stay the course. You'll see the fruit. You'll see the result of that. And of course, all of this is in the context of training. Training for godly living. Training for service to the king. And how should this be done? Well, Paul told Timothy, this should all be done with patient explanation. Patient explanation. Not just simply telling you you're wrong. So you wonder, is that just my opinion? Or did you irritate me? Or is that just the opinion of the crowd or the denomination, our particular church? No, patiently explain. Here's what God says. That's why this is true and this is false. This is right, this is wrong. What God says to do, this is why you do this, but don't do that. Stop doing that. This is why you stay the course. Patiently explain teaching. We should never underestimate the power of teaching. Slowly over time, hearing and understanding, submitting and surrendering, doing and obeying, and the effect it has on changing us. Haddon Robinson was a distinguished professor of preaching at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and he gives an excellent guide on approaching texts and how we preach those things and how we put a filter on it ourselves. And so this is good both for you to hear, even though you're the one that's receiving these things, but also if any of you should ever be the one giving these things. First big question he says to always ask, of course, is, is what you're preaching true to the Word of God? I mean, that should be a given, but it's not. Too often we'll hear sermons that just are not rooted in Scripture. That's not what the Bible says, or it's even contrary to what Scripture says. Is this true to the Word of God? Second, is it true to the purposes of the Bible? The Bible does more for us than just inform us of things. You know, we study the Old Testament, for instance, in Genesis and Exodus, more than just to learn the history of God's people, but how does God's grace work? What does God mean when he makes a covenant with us? How does God keep his promises? How does God carry out his purposes in the world even when his people keep failing him over and over and over again? How does God respond to repentance? How does God bring about correction? So many different themes. Is it true to the purposes of the Bible? You know, if a sermon ends up being all about me and my problems and all the things that I want, we may like it, enjoy it. We may even benefit from it. We may even find 50 verses brought to bear on that subject about me, but it doesn't mean it's true to the purpose of the Bible there. A sermon can be profitable without being biblical. Again, I can talk to you today about verses that speak to money. And I can talk to you about investing your money and how to use your money. I saw something posted on Twitter just this morning. If you could go back to your 18-year-old self and say just three words to your 18-year-old self, what would you say? I'm not sure what you would say to that. Maybe some of you would say, buy Apple stock. 
and then you vanish. Maybe you would say something more valuable than just giving them financial advice. But again, I could do those things and it could be helpful, but it doesn't make it biblical. Third, biblical preaching touches the great issues of Scripture. The Bible doesn't address every single issue that you face. In his lecture, Dr. Robinson gave an example. If you're sitting there struggling right now with a job decision, should I move to Cincinnati and take this new job? What is God's will for me or should I stay here? You're not going to find a verse in there that says that. You can't open up the Bible and stick your finger in and just take whatever you read as some direction from God like it's a spiritual sort of horoscope. You can talk about prayer. You can talk about wisdom. You can look at the needs that your family have. You can look at the opportunities you have to serve him. You can look at many other issues to bear, but it doesn't address everything. So even if you have some pressing questions, it doesn't mean they're always biblical questions because that's not what the Bible's ultimately about. And then, of course, fourthly, the most important issue probably is what we're saying that the Bible says for us to do, does that match what the Bible said to those first people who heard it? Or would somebody in that first generation of here say, whoa, 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 that is not what Peter was talking about. That is not what Paul had in mind. That is not at all what Abraham said. Does it come to bear? So here's our challenge. This is where the onus of the message shifts to you today. So stick with me here for a moment. And it is getting cooler a little. <laughs> here's your responsibility. You ready for this? Endure sound teaching. Curious choice of word there, wouldn't you think? Bible doesn't say, enjoy sound teaching. It says, endure it. Now, I think of that character in the scripture, Eutychus. You know who Eutychus is? You remember Eutychus? Eutychus was one of us. He was one of you. He was sitting, listening to some preaching. He was listening to Paul preach. It was an evening sermon. Maybe he had a long day. I don't know what he did for a living. It was a hot service, sort of like this. He found a cool spot by the window, sat in it, fell asleep, fell out the window, and died. Don't do that. I think, no, I, I don't want you to fall asleep, fall out of your chair onto the floor. But the challenge for you is to endure, not to enjoy. A, a biblical sermon is not meant primarily for our entertainment. I went to a preaching conference years and years ago where the premise of the conference was actually the opposite of the statement I just made, that good preaching is entertaining, and tried to use some semantics to explain what entertainment is, capturing people's attention, keeping that attention, instructing them in unique ways, etc. But no, I would say it's not entertainment. It's, it's really edification. Is this something that's building me up? Because here's what I found, and, and I don't say this with any pride, I think most of you in this room who've been Christians for a long time could say the same thing. If you're eager to meet with God... And if you desire to hear something from God's word, if, if you come to the table, let me give you this metaphor. If you come to the table hungry, you will find something to eat. Do, do you agree with that? In bad sermons, and I've sat through many, some I was listening to as I was speaking them. But at the very least, the word of God always speaks. The Bible promises that. And if you are hungry enough, you'll find nuggets of truth. You'll find wisdom there, even in the worst. But the challenge for us is knowing that it's about my edification. And the message that you're hearing are not simply for you to agree with. They're for you to wrestle with. And see, I kind of already know things that I could say that you're going to basically agree with. And it's not that I mind getting some amens or you got it right or whatever. or you know, Speak it, preacher, or hallelujah, whatever. Throw something at me. I'm good with that. 
But I'm not preaching primarily to say things you already think or know or feel or do. I want us to wrestle with these things. God, how do I do this? How does this apply? Something that was very popular years ago, we don't hear the phrase as much anymore, but the concept is still there, is preaching according to so-called felt needs. Figuring out what, what people feel like they need. Where are their points? What are they struggling with? Marriage and sex, kids and family, money, relationships, friendships, work stuff, stress, anxiety, substances, you know, the list just goes on and on. Whatever those apparent needs are. But here's what I've discovered. The Bible doesn't so much as address our felt needs, but if rightly understood, reading it, hearing it, doing it, it defines our needs. It tells us what our true needs are, our ultimate needs are, and then how God meets those needs. Because you can be listening to a sermon and not even realize you needed that. You needed to hear that, that God is shaping. You thought your situation was this, but your real situation is this. You thought your great need was this, but your real need is this. And that's the, the power of God's word to go far beyond just how we would use it or manipulate it. It defines for us needs. I thought this was interesting. This is from Walter Isaac's biography of Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. And Steve was being interviewed, and he made this statement. He said, some people say, give the customers what they want, but that's not my approach. Our job is to figure out what they're going to want before they do. I think Henry Ford once said, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, they would have told me, a faster horse. People don't know what they want until you show it to them, he said. Well, what an interesting analogy. Now, that was in the world of market research and product development and sales. But I think there's a spiritual truth in that, too, that we don't know what we need sometime until God's Word shows us. God defines those things. So let me give you these challenges very quickly in short order. I want to encourage you as a hearer of the Word to be careful not to seek, not to seek out teaching that only affirms what you already think or feel. Teaching that only affirms what you already think or feel. If I say something that's not a heresy, but it disagrees with something that you already think or feel, it doesn't make me a heretic. It may mean that one or both of us need to revisit the scriptures, search them out. It may mean that we need to do that together and open up the Bible and discern together what can we agree upon, what must we agree upon, what do we not have to agree upon. But if the only messages that you enjoy are already saying things that you already knew, already felt, or are said in a way that you would say it yourself, then you're, you're guilty of doing the very thing that Paul told Timothy people would do in the last days. You're gathering up teachers who will say what your itching ears already want to hear. Number two, be careful not to seek teaching that's me-centered instead of God-centered. You may leave here on a Sunday thinking, you know, there wasn't very much personal application for me in that this week I don't know what to do with that that I just heard that does not help me with my struggle with my neighbor that does not help me be a better parent to my suddenly rebellious 11 year old but if you were if you were taught on the infinite goodness of God and the scriptures all led you to a sense of even in the things I don't know can't perceive, don't understand, but I trust that God is infinitely good, then you have something worthwhile to sink your teeth into, to 
dig your roots into, to build your faith on. Teaching that's God-centered ultimately and always grows us. I want every week for us to see how big God is and how good God is and how great God is and how generous God is, how merciful God is. Be careful also not to seek teaching that leaves you comfortable in your sin or complacent in your disobedience. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be guilty of that. I, I don't want to be guilty of just saying things that would just allow you to stay in your mind exactly as you are. Because remember I said last week, none of us are really static spiritually. And so every time we hear something that affirms us in our sin, we're not staying on that same uh, plateau. We're actually going backwards a little bit more and a little bit more, becoming hardened to the truth. Harder and harder for it to penetrate us. Don't, don't seek teaching that leaves you comfortable in your sin or complacent not doing anything, being active. Number four, don't seek teaching that fuels your craving for what's new or novel. I, I think a lot of folks maybe who grew up in churches that were primarily about them and felt needs and all those things, how do we cater to you? Get bored with the stuff. They, they develop an appetite that's really about them, and so you're looking, show me something new that I've never heard. Give me something novel that no one else is saying. I, I want to hear something, and we don't, don't conflate novelty for profundity, okay? You can tweet that. That's tweetable right there. Don't conflate novelty for profundity. Just because someone's saying something that you never heard doesn't make it true or right. It could just be a very old false teaching repackaged for a modern ear, okay? Be careful of that, new and novel. As the wise writer of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. And as different as we may be in dress and in housing and in community and those sort of things as the ancient Israelites were, at the core, we're pretty much the same. We're pretty much the same. People are people. And as much as our daily routines and community and all those things may look different than those folks we meet when we go to Kenya, you know what we find the more you talk with people and spend time with people? People are people. We have the same needs, same struggles, and God meets our needs. Be careful, too, that you don't seek teaching that is not clear and consistent from Scripture. One great challenge for me that I try to uphold for myself, because some of you have challenged me, where do you find that in Scripture? What you said, where do you find that? And as I've said to you many times before, I have opinions about everything. You can ask my family. I have thoughts about everything. I can tell you my, my opinions on just about every subject, and I like all of them. But here, it's this. It has to be this. Because my opinions are not life-changing. They're not world-altering. They're not people-saving. This is. So, I want to conclude with this thought. Each week, this is what we do. We're trusting in the slow work of God. Now, that may not sound satisfying to you. I don't know. But the slow work of God that changes us over time. I like what Henry Cloud says. Essence of change is grace and truth applied over time. Over time. I hope that something that happens in here on any given Sunday might motivate you to repent of something, might motivate you to begin something, 
might light a fire in you that will take you someplace. And I know that by God's grace sometimes, and maybe some of you in this room can testify to this, there are certain times and places where God decides in that moment he's going to bring about a massive shift in a person, a massive life change. But for the most part, the aim is to feed a hungry soul today. It's to feed you today from God's word. It's to build in you a growing appetite, little by little, for God and the knowledge of God through his word as you become exposed to more and more of it. It's to move you in some way today, if you're a believer, towards maturity, towards godliness. If you're not a believer, it's intended to paint a picture for you accurately of who is God. Why should you care? What has he done? How will you relate to him? What will happen when you stand before him? All of these things. And it's designed to get you to next Sunday. Because next Sunday we'll feast again. None of us were designed to eat occasionally or periodically. Or go to a giant feast of a meal once in a while and then ignore it until another great need comes. But week by week being fed on the word. Again, I love what Cloud said. He said, the Lord accepts us fully knowing that we'll need time and experience to work out our imperfections. We have a standing in grace that gives us freedom to face the truth over time. I like that statement. In Christ, we have a standing in grace. I'm not ebbing and flowing in and out of his acceptance of me. Facing the truth includes becoming honest about where we are, acknowledging and meeting the developmental needs of our real selves, experiencing the grace of relationships. This is why you can't just listen to a sermon online. It's not the same thing hearing from real people and having real people engage you and speak into your life learning the truth about what God wants for us obeying the external truth of the precepts of God and receiving forgiveness from him which enables us to start again when we fail it takes time to face and live out these truths and that's what God's redemptive timing is all about grace and truth and time and in that God is shaping us and he's preparing us for eternity he's preparing us to be with him so in closing, what's the most important, you can ask, most important question you can ask when you're hearing a message? It's not the only question. What's the most important question you can ask? Is this true? Is this true? Hath God really said? Is this what his word really says? And the most important response you can give to the word is what? Help me out here. What's the most important response you can give? Somebody throw something at me. Obedience. Your most important response is, is obedience. Scripture is to be done. This book is to be done. It's to be lived, not just known. You remember what Paul told Timothy in the earlier chapter, chapter 3? All Scripture breathed out. It's all profitable. Reproof, correction, training. Why? Catch verse 17. That the man of God, and that's not gender specific there, it's the person of God, may be complete, equipped for every good feeling every good belief every good work because ultimately what we do is what we believe and our desires do fuel our actions but the ultimate result God is after is what we do are we doers of the word or hearers only that's our challenge let's pray Father may you always be glorified through the preaching of your word. 
the telling of the great news of your Son and our Savior, our King. May you always be glorified in those things in this church. From this pulpit, in this place, from whomever delivers that message to us. And Father, may we always be those who are ready to hear. May we come hungry. Father, increase our appetite. May we come with the desire to be obedient. Father, do that by your Spirit. Put in us the will to do what's pleasing to you. Father, may we not be easily frustrated because we can't do what it is we want to do. No, Father, may we trust in your promise that you give us both the will and the ability to do what's pleasing to you. Father, I pray the longer we have, the, the more we hear, the more we share with one another, the stronger we'll become, the deeper our roots will grow, the more we'll be ready for that day. And Father, the more we'll be ready to make others ready, the more we'll be doers of the word, not hearers only. The more the deep truths, the vital understandings would affect every aspect of our life. That we would just live this out. Our view of the world would be right. Our view of each other would be correct. Our view of the future would be confident. And Father, that we would live out the word. May we do that. Father, I thank you for the believers in this room today. I pray that you would grow them up till that day that day of return Father I pray for any unbeliever in this room that at the very least today they've heard this the king is coming again when he comes he does not come to offer himself up as a sacrifice for sins again he does not come again as one who will take our place take our sins die on a cross save us through resurrection but he comes as a judge he comes now to reveal hearts motives intentions thoughts and every deed he comes now to separate those who are his from those who are not he comes now to reward and to punish he comes now to establish a kingdom where he is king and everything will be exactly as he wants it to be and all will be good father if they're not ready for that day, Father, I pray that first of all, they would believe those statements are true. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Father, you would define for them now their need for you, their need for your grace, their need for your forgiveness, their need for hope that's not based in positive thinking, doing better, making themselves fit. But Father, they would come to you as they are today, say save me save me from my sin my rebellion against you my unbelief of you my disregard for you my doing anything that's contrary to what you command what you desired how you made me whatever it may be father they would come to you and receive grace today grace so much greater than sin and they come to you with humility and find that lord in that humility you meet them. You give grace to the humble. And Father, they would receive that today. Lord, may each of us leave this place with a sense of your goodness, your grace, the power of your redemption for everyone who will receive it. So Lord, may the believers celebrate it. Thank you for their standing in you. 
May those who do not yet know you choose it, receive it, experience it today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.